Welcome back to Sad Girl Study Guides. As always, I'm your host, Amelia, and as always, I'm sad. This episode is the next chapter in the study guide on the Stuart dynasty. This time we'll be exploring Charles I, which means talking about the English Civil War, which means Puritans for days, bitches. Just as a quick note before we begin, this is just going to be an overview on the English Civil War. There's not going to be a whole lot of military history going on. If you want a super amazing deep dive on the English Civil War, I would highly recommend the first season of Revolutions by Mike Duncan because he covers the English Civil War at a level that I could only dream of doing and I will not be doing because I'm trying to keep this episode about an hour long. Anyways, moving on. In history class, Charles I of England was that guy who started a civil war and got his head cut off. But his story is so much more than parliament and fighting and death. The highlights of his study guide include some fun shoes and a shockingly stable marriage. Let's begin. The child who would one day be known as Charles I of England is born November 19th, 1600. He is the fourth child of James I of England and Anne of Denmark. As a child, he's super weak and sickly. When the rest of the family moves down from Scotland to England in 1603, Charles is too sick to go. He has to stay in Scotland an extra year, and he doesn't move to England with the rest of the family until 1604. Even past 1604, Charles isn't exactly in the best of health. Throughout his childhood, he has a stammer, which means as an adult, he isn't going to love public speaking, which isn't great when you're king. He also has rickets as a child, which means he's going to have to wear these special iron shoes in an attempt to straighten his legs out. They work, but Charles is going to be very short as an adult, and as a result of that, he really likes to be painted on horseback because it makes him look taller and more commanding. Thanks to his ill health, Charles grows up being kind of a nerd. He likes to stay inside and read a good book, specifically a good book by Shakespeare. And honestly, I can't blame him all that much. Growing up, Charles is not expected to be the next king of England. He has an older brother, Henry. Everyone's expecting Henry to be king, so Henry is the one getting all the kingly training while Charles is just hanging out in the background. But then, in 1612, Henry unexpectedly dies, so now the very unprepared Charles is heir to the throne of England. So, what does Charles do to prepare himself to be king? Does he go meet with Parliament, talk to them about the issues that the country is facing? Ha! No, of course not. He promptly becomes friends with his father's lover main advisor, George the Duke of Buckingham. The two bond over their mutual love of art and horses. The two are so close that in 1623, when Charles decides to go to Spain to visit a possible fiancé, Princess Maria Anna of Spain, he takes George, the Duke of Buckingham, along for the ride. This little road trip to Spain goes terribly. The idea of Charles marrying a Spanish princess is super unpopular in England because, one, 
Spain and England traditionally have been enemies. And two, Maria Anna is known to be very Catholic, and English Protestants are not thrilled with this whole idea. When George and Charles show up to the Spanish court, they promptly get utterly humiliated by Maria Anna's father, King Philip. The two end up having to go back to England with their heads down in defeat. The only thing that Charles gets out of this whole mess is some paintings by Titian and a portrait painted by Velasquez. So, whatever. It's no big deal. The Maria Anna thing went so badly that there were almost riots in England. People were super convinced that Charles was secretly going to convert to Catholicism. He does not. He stays a Protestant and ends up marrying Henrietta Maria of France, the sister of Louis XIII instead. Henrietta Maria is also Catholic, but Louis XIII is not quite as you must convert to marry my sister as Philip had been with Maria Anna. In 1625, James dies and Charles finally becomes King of England on March 27, 1625. From the get-go, Charles already has a bit of a different reputation than his dad. He's known for being much more uptight about things. He likes his privacy, and he makes it clear that his court is going to have many more rules than his father's court. You're not just going to waltz in, have a crazy party, boobs out, dick out. No, no, no. You're going to bow 27 times before you even dare to make eye contact with Charles. So maybe things in England are going to go better with Charles. Maybe we won't have the same financial pressures in the royal court. Ha! No. Charles's court might be much more procedure-driven than James's had been, but it's still really extravagant and costs a lot of money. About 40% of the royal income goes straight towards paying household costs. And much like his dear old dad, Charles is going to struggle to raise money. And much like his dear old dad, Charles also is going to struggle to play nice with Parliament in attempts to get that money. One of the first things he does once he's king is get married. Charles and Henrietta Maria marry in May 1625 via proxy, which was pretty common for the time period. They don't actually meet in person until June 1625. The relationship between Charles and Henrietta Maria starts out a little bit awkward. First of all, there's that lovely 10-year age gap, but who cares about something like that? And then there's the fact that Charles is spending all of his time with the Duke of Buckingham, and Buckingham literally is sleeping in a room right next to Charles's bedroom, even though there's nothing sexual there. I promise Charles is boringly heterosexual. And there's also the fact that England and France are currently fighting over France's treatment of the French Calvinists, aka the Huguenots, which definitely adds some nice fun tension to Charles and Henrietta Maria's brand new relationship. However, the relationship between the two will get better, helped by the fact that Charles aggressively does not have any mistresses. Soon after his marriage, Charles calls his first parliament in June 1625. This first parliament does not go well, setting the stage for all future parliaments that Charles will call. 
Parliament is pretty annoyed by the fact that Charles has decided to keep the Duke of Buckingham on as his main advisor. They thought that once James I was dead, George Villiers would go float off into the ether. They're also annoyed that Charles has put Buckingham in charge of the Navy. They feel like he's not effective, he's just going to keep running England into the ground. As a show of their annoyance, Parliament votes not to give Charles control over certain customs. And you might be like, Amelia, why the fuck are you talking about certain customs? This is so boring and financial and procedural, but it's important. This is the first time in about 200 years that Parliament hasn't automatically given the king control over these customs. And it's seen as a huge slap in the face. And it is a huge slap in the face. Parliament is basically giving Charles a giant middle finger two months into his reign. Charles is so pissed off by this that he dissolves Parliament on the spot. He tries to prove that he can rule without Parliament. In an attempt to show that he can do things without Parliament's help, in October, Charles tries to seize some land from Spain, and this whole campaign is a complete failure. Turns out, maybe Charles does need help from Parliament after all. In 1626, Charles has his official coronation. Yes, he had been ruling for about a year, but he hadn't officially been crowned. Now he finally has the fancy ceremony. It's all very nice, except his own wife refuses to attend the coronation because there isn't a Catholic mass. Awkward. After the coronation, Charles recalls Parliament. He needs money after the whole failed Spanish expedition. Before Parliament meets, Charles decides to remove some of its opposition leaders. While this might have been a good idea in the moment, it ends up being a huge mistake down the line. Suddenly there's a bit of a power vacuum in Parliament, and more extreme members of the opposition are able to get power. These more extreme members convince the rest of the MPs to attempt to impeach the Duke of Buckingham. They also refuse, once again, to give Charles the power to collect the specific customs that I talked about for his first round of Parliament. Charles decides that he's going to collect those custom duties anyways, and now everyone's mad at everyone else, and Charles, once again, dissolves Parliament. Just as a side note, the phrase Charles dissolves Parliament is going to happen a lot in this podcast, so please don't get sick of it. In addition to all this parliamentary drama, Charles is also having to deal with some religious drama. We see the rise of this religious group known as the Arminians, not the Armenians like the national group, the Arminians. Basically, the Arminians believe that the Church of England needs more beauty and more ritual. Because of their focus on ritual, they get accused of being too Catholic. And William Loud, the Bishop of London, who is one of the most powerful church leaders in England, is accused of secretly being an Arminian and, as a result, of secretly being a Catholic. This leads to fighting between Loud and Lower Anglicans and Calvinists. Charles is pretty close with Loud, so as a result, he starts punishing and restricting Calvinist priests within the church, which makes them unpopular with Lower Anglicans and 
various Protestant groups who don't love the direction that the church is going in, such as the Puritans. To make matters even messier, his wife is Catholic, so everyone's worried that he might secretly be a Catholic, or he's trying to make England Catholic again. Mecca? Yeah, that'd be the acronym. Mecca! Around this time, Charles also attempts some foreign policy of his own. He's a grown-up. He can do what he wants. The first thing he tries to do is to intervene in the Thirty Years' War, which is going on for quite a while. After all, his sister, Elizabeth, the Winter Queen, is really caught up in the Thirty Years' War on the Protestant side, and England is a Protestant nation. Why shouldn't England get involved? However, he has no money, so he never is quite able to jump into the Thirty Years' War, which makes both him and England look very weak on the international stage. So instead, Charles decides to do some foreign policy a little bit closer to home. He jumps, he starts getting involved in the Huguenot drama in France. He decides that England is going to support the Huguenots and help them with their siege at La Rochelle. The England campaign to lift the siege at Ra at La Rochelle, ends up being a huge disaster. The English army under, guess who, Buckingham, gets utterly crushed. During all this time, Charles does need money to perform said failed foreign policy. He hasn't called Parliament yet, so he's levying forced loans on the gentry. It's a little unclear if he's allowed to do this. It's never quite been done. So 70 members of the gentry say, yeah, no, we're not paying this forced loan. Fuck you, Charles. And he imprisons them. Five of the imprisoned gentry take him to court over arbitrary arrest. They say, you had no right to force us to pay this money, so you can't arrest us for refusing to pay. The five gentry do end up losing the court case, but it does lay the groundwork for some important legal stuff that's going to come later on in his reign. In response to this refusal to pay some of his loans, Charles is going to impose martial law in southern England. And I find this really interesting. When you think of the early 1600s and pre-English Civil War England, we don't really think that much about martial law, but it was going on. There are huge chunks of English history where huge chunks of England are just under army control. Finally, in 1628, Charles has to call another parliament because he really does want another expedition to France and he needs the money. Initially, this new parliament looks like it might actually go kind of well. We have these two moderates who are leading the members of parliament, Thomas Wentworth and Edward Coke. Both of them want a Bill of Rights to prevent Charles from making random arrests, to keep him from just imposing martial law and imposing random taxes whenever he wants. And in exchange for him not doing these things, Parliament would grant Charles his money. Wentworth and Coke get this Bill of Rights through the House of Commons. When it comes to the House of Lords, they switch the name of the Bill of Rights to the Petition of Rights. They feel like Bill of Rights is a little too aggressive, and Petition of Rights is more nice. We're just asking you for these basic rights. 
it works. The House of Lords supports the Petition of Rights, and it goes to Charles. Basically, the Petition of Rights would make Charles follow existing laws. Remember, the king isn't supposed to just tax people without Parliament's consent. You're not just supposed to arbitrarily arrest people. And in exchange for following existing laws, Charles will get money from Parliament in exchange. Everyone's happy. Except not really. Because as soon as the whole petition of rights thing is figured out, Wentworth flips sides. Charles makes him a lord, and Wentworth is like, gee, thanks bro, I'm joining up with you now. Okay, fine. It's a little bit more complicated than that. While Wentworth was dealing with the whole petition of rights thing, he began realizing that the House of Commons was kind of a hot mess and maybe was a place he didn't want to be in so much. But besides Wentworth jumping sides, it does look like we maybe have a framework that's going to work. Charles will follow the law. Parliament will give him money. Parliament will give him money. Yay! But right after the petition is passed, in August 1628, the Duke of Buckingham is murdered by a disgruntled army officer who's annoyed that he hasn't been paid. Buckingham's death causes a real power vacuum around the king. Suddenly, Charles doesn't have any advisors. He's going to be ruling totally on his own, making all decisions for himself, which, spoiler, is going to go really badly. On the upside, with Buckingham out of the picture, Charles and Henrietta Maria finally start getting to know each other and begin getting really close as a result. The two do have a really strong and close relationship. They end up having six children, Charles, Mary, James, Elizabeth, and Henry and Henrietta. The first three, Charles, Mary, and James, all will be kings and queens in their own right. A year after the petition of right, Charles is still having money issues and has to recall Parliament. Remember how the petition of rights made it seem like everything was going to go really smoothly? Yeah, that doesn't last very long, because as soon as this new Parliament is recalled, Charles tells Parliament that he's going to be collecting customs no matter what Parliament says. A bunch of the members of Parliament are like, yeah, no, you're not doing that. We're not going to pay your customs. And Charles is like, okay, cool, you're getting arrested. The members of Parliament point out that technically he can't do that because his father, James I, had said that when Parliament's in session, members of Parliament can't be punished. So almost from the get-go, we're, almost from the get-go, we're seeing a lot of tension between Charles and Parliament. As a result of this tension, rumors start swirling that Charles, yet again, is going to dissolve Parliament. This one member of Parliament, John Eliot, has had enough. He says, look, if Charles is going to dissolve Parliament, we need to pass certain resolutions to tell him that we're annoyed, to show him what we're about. On March 2nd, 1629, John Eliot and his supporters physically hold down the Speaker of Parliament to keep Parliament going in order to pass the two resolutions. And they do. The resolutions say that Arminians are treasonous and say that it is treason to levy and enforce duties without Parliament's consent. Both of these resolutions 
are huge fuck yous to Charles I. After all, Charles's close friend, William Loud, may or may not be an Armenian, and by saying Armenians are treasonous, you're basically calling Loud a traitor. And Charles has already enforced duties without Parliament, so you've just said that the king has done treason. Sure, John Elliot and his friends do get these resolutions passed, but the entire thing ends up backfiring. One, it makes Parliament seem extreme. After all, they had physically held someone down to get what they wanted. And two, Charles is so annoyed by John Elliot that he dissolves Parliament for 11 years in response. He imprisons John Elliot for the whole March 2nd shenanigan, and John Elliot will die in prison. So let's talk about Charles I and the 11 years he spends without Parliament. Charles is not going to be ruling completely on his own. He does have a nice little interim staff of advisors. There's Weston, his treasurer, who is amazingly corrupt and super proves Bane. We have Wentworth, who had left Parliament to join with the king, who's going to serve as Charles's deputy for, to Ireland and isolate basically everyone in the process and is pretty anti-opposition. We have William Loud, the Bishop of London, who Charles makes Archbishop of Canterbury in 1633, who also hates opposition. And lastly, we have Charles's wife, Henrietta Maria, who has a lot of power and influence over Charles and is very, very pro-royal absolutism. Charles makes it pretty clear that he is not going to be using Parliament. In 1634, he makes it illegal to spread rumors that Parliament is going to be recalled. And by 1636, it's pretty clear that Parliament's only coming back if he really needs money or if there's a really, really huge national emergency. Like, I don't know, if a country to the north of England happened to invade. So the members of Parliament are sitting at home being very quiet because none of them want to be arrested the way John Elliot was. A man named John Pym, who had also been a critic of James I, ends up getting leadership of what remains of the parliamentary opposition. And they're not really doing all that much, but they are there. Meanwhile, Charles is continuing to attempt to raise money. Technically, he's not supposed to raise taxes without Parliament, and since he's gotten rid of Parliament, he's going to have to get creative. First, he tells merchants that they have to pay duties to the crown or else they're not allowed to trade. The merchants aren't thrilled about this, but given that England has declared peace with both France and Spain, there's suddenly a ton of new trade opportunities, so most merchants suck it up and pay the duties so they can continue on with their livelihoods. Charles also extends some old duties. He also adds duties to goods shipped through the country, which is pretty unpopular. Traditionally, duties are put on goods that are entering into a country, not goods that are going within a country. He also raises rent on farmers and uses old traditional feudal rights that have fallen out of favor to raise money. All of these are pretty unpopular and don't actually raise that much money. As a result, Charles also has to sell off some of his crown lands and royal titles. 
titles. So what we're seeing is Charles not really getting the money he needs and in the process isolating whatever support he might have had. In 1634, Charles is getting pretty desperate for money. So he decides to put in place what is known as ship money. He says that he needs money to build a new navy because Spain is going to invade England any day now. He says that this money that he needs to raise is only going to come from specific coastal bits of England, and it's going to be a one-time thing, guys, so it's definitely not a tax. However, by, thir- by 1636, ship money is being levied in the entire country, and it's pretty clear that it's becoming permanent. This guy, John Hamden, is like, fuck no, I'm not paying ship money, and he gets arrested. In court, Hamden's like, ship money is not an emergency tax. It's a permanent tax. It's being levied in the entire country. Charles is breaking the law because he raised a tax without Parliament. I'm not paying it. Hamden does lose his case, but multiple judges agree with him and say, yeah, Charles, you went way too far, bro. This is a huge moral defeat for Charles. And by 1640, he has to stop ship money because there's such a large refusal of people to pay the tax and because tax collectors are literally getting attacked. In addition to ship money, there are three other big crises that Charles is going to face during his 11 years without Parliament. I like to think of them as the three R's. That way it's easy to remember for the test. We have religion, repression, and Scotland. First up, religion. By 1633, William Loud, Charles's BFF, and possible Arminian, possible Catholic, is the Archbishop of Canterbury. As Archbishop of Canterbury, he's not so focused on the whole Arminian, Catholic, am I secretly betraying the Church of England question. He's more interested on codifying ritual and making sure that Anglican clergy are paid and educated, which is a really nice idea. I mean, your priest is the center of your town's life. He's the one healing the sick and educating your children and marrying you. You want to make sure that he can read and write and has a place to live. However, this is shockingly unpopular. People are worried that Loud's love of education and paying priests is secretly a plot to take away people's land and restore it back to the church. Loud also has a habit of defrocking bishops who oppose him, which weakens support that he might have had within the church. And then there's the fact that he's sympathetic and tolerant to Catholics. This is mostly because the queen is Catholic and Loud does want to stay within her good graces, but as a result of this sympathy and toleration, Loud becomes even more unpopular. All of these issues over religion in England over this time period lead to a lot of immigration to the American colonies. We have Puritans and Separatists going to the New England colonies and Catholics heading to Maryland. And then we have the repression issue. There's this Puritan pamphlet here, William Prynne. And William Prynne, frankly, is a piece of work. He's a really stuck-up, prudish slut-shamer. 
he basically writes this pamphlet where he calls the queen a whore for liking to act in plays. And in response to this, he gets arrested, charged with libel, branded, and has his ear cut off. This case is controversial. It's not controversial because of the whole being charged with libel and having your ear cut off. That was a normal punishment in the time period because what is freedom of the press? It's controversial because the case is tried by the Star Chamber, which is the king's special court. And William Loud is the head judge in the William Prim case, even though Loud has a clear bias. As a result of the William Prim case, we begin seeing an allegiance with Puritans and people who just don't like William Loud and think that he's overstepping. Suddenly, the opposition against Charles and his advisors is coming together. It's not quite so scattered after all. And lastly, we have our final crisis, Scotland. Charles hasn't been to Scotland since he was four, and as a result, he's pretty isolated from the Scottish nobles. Really, the only Scottish nobles who actually like Charles live in England full-time or are Catholic. In 1637, Charles decides he's going to do something really smart. He's going to force Scotland to follow a new prayer book that's based on the Church of England. This is super unpopular. It's seen as a major English overreach, and this new prayer book is seen as too Laudian, too quasi-Catholic, and it leads to riots throughout Scotland. In response to the new prayer book, in 1638, the Scottish nobility call the National Covenant, and they say that they're going to support traditional Scottish religious and political rights over the king. Let's take a moment to think about that. The Scottish nobility suddenly say, yeah, the king is not their top priority anymore. If it comes down to it, they're going to fight against him. And Charles takes the bait. In 1639, he calls an army to force the Scottish nobility into submission. The Scottish nobles are like, okay, cool, we'll call an army against you. The Scottish army is super unified in opposition, whereas the English army aggressively is not. Very few people show up, even though we do have mass conscription. And there's also the little fact that Charles just doesn't have the money to raise an army. He's going to have to rely on creditors and future revenue from unpopular taxes to pay for the war. And as he's trying to raise this money, we also have growing opposition in England over religion, over the Prim case, over the Hamden cases. Even Charles's advisors can't figure out what to do. By May 1640, Charles and his army are completely out of money. He can't keep fighting. So he has to recall Parliament. This first Parliament, the first one in 11 years, is known as the Short Parliament. Charles recalls it, Parliament meets, Charles refuses to negotiate with them, and dissolves it almost immediately. But in August 1640, the Scottish army invades Northern England and makes it all the way down to Newcastle. 
In response to this invasion, London stops giving the king loans. England is on the verge of anarchy. What's going to happen? I'll tell you what's going to happen. A peace party made up of former members of parliament promises to scapegoat the king's advisors and not the king himself if parliament's allowed to meet. The king relents and calls parliament. This is going to be known as the Long Parliament. It's going to last from November 1640 until May 1660. That's a pretty long parliament, if you ask me. Parliament hasn't met for a while, and they're going to hit the ground running. It's Stuart Wars, episode 5, Parliament Strikes Back. Insert Star Wars music here, because I definitely don't have the copyright for that. Sorry. One of the first things that the new Parliament's going to do is call for the arrest of William Loud and Thomas Wentworth, both of whom, both of whom are pretty unpopular by this point. Wentworth gets impeached and arrested in November 1640 and will be executed in 1641. However, the charges against him are pretty shaky. Parliament is only able to execute him via a bill of attainder, not an actual trial, which shows that the legality of the treason charges against him were pretty questionable. Parliament couldn't even put him up to a trial. They knew that if he went to trial, Parliament probably would lose, so they use a backdoor way of killing him. In 1641, William Loud is also impeached and arrested, and he's going to hang out in prison for a while. Once they have Loud and Wentworth out of the way, Parliament, led by John Pym, starts reforming itself. It passes the Triennial Act, which says that Parliament has to be called every three years and cannot be dissolved without its own consent. This is going to prevent any more of those 11-year-long stretches without a parliament. Parliament also says that Charles can't have other financial abuses like ship money. They banned the Star Chamber. They put limits on the power of the Privy Council and start to ask if, hey, maybe we can choose the king's ministers. Charles is not thrilled about these reforms, but he is limited in what he can do against Parliament because his creditors in London are only willing to loan him money if Parliament sits, and Charles needs the money desperately. So, in 1640, we have this awkward truce. Neither side likes or trusts the other. Charles thinks that the members of Parliament are using him and trying to take off his power, and the members of Parliament think that Charles is just waiting to strike, to strike back, and Parliament is only able to sit because Charles is basically being blackmailed by his creditors. We also start seeing some pretty large religious divisions in Parliament. A lot of the members of Parliament, like I already mentioned, hate William Loud. But then there's the issue of what to do beyond. We also begin seeing some new re fun religious divisions in Parliament. The split is between extreme Puritans who want to completely reform the Anglican Church and get rid of the bishop system and the moderates and low church Anglicans who are like, eh, 
Once William Loud is out of the way, the church will fix itself. The tension between these two groups is going to continue and is going to keep dividing Parliament. About a year into the Long Parliament, Charles' popularity is going to see a bit of a peak. A lot of the English public feels like Parliament might just be going too far in these various reforms. Also, Parliament's pretty divided. They're not getting a lot of stuff done. Charles is able to step in and take advantage of that. But as soon as that happens, we get a fun little rebellion in Ireland. In October 1641, Irish Catholics try to disarm the Ulster Plantation and, in the process, kill about 5,000 Protestants. The Irish rebels say that they were following Charles's authority, which is a huge problem for him. It makes it look like that maybe he supported the killing of 5,000 Protestants. As a result of this rebellion in Ireland, Charles loses basically whatever support he might have gained. He also begins getting a bit of a bad attitude towards Parliament yet again, this time over the question of who should have control over the army in Ireland, Charles or Parliament. Some reforms do end up happening, and in the process, Charles isolates all the moderates who realize that Parliament isn't trying to increase their own power with this with these reforms, but is simply trying to just do their job. By the end of 1641, we're basically back where we started. Parliament and Charles hate each other, but now we have that fun added bonus of destruction and death in Ireland, which is pretty par for the course. By late 1641, the Puritans in Parliament are really ratcheting up the campaign against English bishops, and are saying some pretty nasty anti-Catholic things in the process. As a result of this, Charles starts getting pretty nervous for the safety of his wife, the Catholic Henrietta Maria. So he attempts a military coup against Parliament. He accuses five members of Parliament, including Pym of treason, and tries to arrest them. It doesn't go well. The members of Parliament flee to London, which is aggressively pro-Parliament, causing Charles to lose whatever small amount of moderate support he had, as well as support of the entire city of London. After the failed coup, Charles and his family move up to York, and Parliament decides that now that Charles is out of the picture, they're just going to comp continue legislating via majority vote without the king. In March 1642, Parliament passes the Militia Ordinance, which says that they're allowed to name commanders to the army without the king and say that they can dictate who the king's ministers are without the king's consent. So, this is the state on the ground. The king's up in the north, Parliament's down in London, continuing to Parliament. It seems like we're on a crash course to civil war, and you would be right. Parliament does try to negotiate with the king throughout the spring and early summer of 1642. They try to get the king back to London. It doesn't work. Charles just refuses to negotiate. And the First English Civil War officially starts August 20th, 1642. 
1642, with the raising of the royal standard at Nottingham. Okay, fine. Technically, there was a small skirmish over an arsenal at Hull earlier in April, but no one really counts that. The English Civil War officially starts August 20th, 1642. Before we dive into the English Civil War and what happened therein, let's talk a little bit about the two sides and what they want and how they're going to get it. We have the Royalists, aka supporters of Charles, and the Parliamentarians, aka supporters of Parliament. The East and Southeast of England tend to be the population centers and they tend to be pro-Parliament. The North of England, the West of England, and Wales tend to be pro-Charles. Ireland is also going to be like vaguely pro-Charles because of the whole Catholic wife thing. Puritans tend to be pro-Parliament, whereas High Anglicans tend to be pro-Charles, as do Catholics. The gentry and the wealthy are going to be pro-Charles, while the middle class are going to be pro-Parliament. This is all pretty general. Obviously, you might have some gentry who support Parliament. You might have someone living in the southeast of England who supports Charles. But these are sort of the big trends we're going to see. We're also going to see, you also might see names besides the Royalists and the Parliamentary Forces for the two sides. Parliament's army, the pro-Parliament side is also sometimes called the Roundheads because their soldiers cut their hair short to fit under their helmets, and the, the royalists also are sometimes known as the cavaliers. That's where we get the dog breed cavalier King Charles Spaniel from. Fun fact, if you forget anything else from this podcast, please remember about the dogs. So now let's talk about the goals of each side and their advantages and disadvantage. Charles has one main goal, capture London. His advantages are the fact that he only has a single goal, capturing London, he has the support of the country's elite and wealthy men, and he has a pretty unified command. However, he's going to be pretty indecisive about strategy throughout the war, and he's going to constantly be lacking money, which means he can't pay his soldiers, which is going to be kind of a problem. Meanwhile, Parliament is a little bit divided on what their goal is. There are three main groups. There's the peace party that just wants peace. There's the middle group led by John Pym that wants to negotiate with the king after a little bit of skirmishing. It's like, let's show him who's boss and then we'll come to an agreement. And then there's the war party of parliament, which wants a total defeat of the king, but to keep him around. At the start of the English Civil War, no one in parliament wants to totally get rid of the king or kill him. The main disadvantage of Parliament is the fact that they're divided in their goal. However, Parliament has some pretty huge advantages. They control London, and whoever controls London has access to the Navy, access to the best trade routes, a very huge territorial advantage, access to money, and the law courts. Parliament also has most of the businessmen and merchants on their side, so they're always going to have an upper hand when it comes to money. So, we've covered the two sides, who their members are, what their goals are, and what their advantages and disadvantages are. The first year of the English Civil War goes pretty well for the Royalists. They almost capture 
the city of London under the command of Charles's nephew, Prince Rupert, but Rupert never quite has the forces and is a little over-enthusiastic in a whole lot of regards, so the royalists never quite manage to take London. After 1642, the royalists are never going to be on the offensive. 1643 and 1644 is going to see a lot of balanced fighting. Most of the fighting is going to be going on in the Thames Valley and the Midlands. It's going to be affecting your average Joe farmer who's going to see his crops and fields totally destroyed. As the war drags on, people are going to start getting against the war. They're going to be neutral. They're like, why are we having this fight? Parliament has no effect on my daily life as a farmer. I just would like you to stop destroying my crops so I don't die of starvation. Thank you very much. Neither side really has an upper hand. Honestly, both sides are pretty equally incompetent. Parliament does get a slight advantage when they ally with Scotland and get some more troops, but even that doesn't really shift the balance of power. What does shift the balance of power is in 1644 when both Pym and Hamden die and the middle ground in Parliament loses its leadership. With the middle ground out of the way, the war party starts to gain power. The war party is going to be led by Oliver Cromwell and Thomas Fairfax. Thomas Fairfax is the commander-in-chief of the parliamentary forces, known as the New Model Army. A really big thing that Thomas Fairfax does as a commander-in-chief is making sure that the troops get paid regularly and get promoted based on how skilled they, on how skilled they are. It works. Starting at the end of 1644 and going into 1645, the new model army begins fighting super well and sees a string of victories. By the end of 1644, the royalists lose control of the north. Henrietta Maria has her last child with Charles, named Henrietta, and she flees to France with the younger children because the writing is on the wall. By the end of 1644, Parliament brings William Lau to trial, and they execute him by Bill of Attainder in January 1645. In 1645, they also start besieging the last major royal holdout, the city of Oxford. By 1646, Charles doesn't have much land, money, or troops left, and he ends up surrendering to Scotland on April 27th. When he surrenders, his oldest son, Prince Charles, flees to France, and he will stay in France and the Netherlands until the Restoration in 1616. Charles is surrendered to Scotland, which is great for him, except that Scotland is allied with Parliament, so maybe not so good. The king might have surrendered, but the fighting isn't quite done yet, because in 1646 we have a popular revolt against the war. A group of rural farmers, known as the Clubmen, start fighting the army. They're trying to drive both sides to a negotiation to just stop the war so they can go back to farming. It doesn't really go anywhere, but it's worth a try, and I think it's like a cool little footnote in our study guide. By 1646, the fighting is over. Parliament has won. Charles is in Scottish custody. Because Scotland has Charles, Parliament does have to work with Scotland. They make a deal with Scotland. 
they're going to redo the Church of England with a Scottish Presbyterian angle. We're going to have the rule of elders, representation of all classes, no cathedral, no book of prayer, no calendar. You can kiss Christmas goodbye. Parliament also decides that they're going to set up a mandatory national faith. And some people in England are like, uh, say what? No, thank you. We would like you to be independent and have some religious liberty. Thanks very much. And Parliament's like, hmm, maybe. We'll talk about that later. Parliament also says that we that they will be running the army for the next 20 years and will be in charge of the king's ministers indefinitely. So we've seen a really clear shift in power. Parliament has the upper hand from now on. In June 1647, Scotland gives Charles back to England, and he is moved back down to London. Around this time, Parliament runs out of money. They've become the Charles in this situation. To save some money, they decide to send the army to Ireland without pay, and just to make peace with Charles so they don't have to fight anymore. The army is not thrilled about this. Number one, they don't like the fact that they're not getting paid and they have to go live in an Irish bog. And number two, they don't love the fact that Charles just is being made peace with without any negotiation whatsoever. So in August 1647, the army marches on London. The army removes opposition MPs and forces the remaining MPs to vote for taxes to raise the army's pay and forces the army to not just immediately roll over for Charles. When the army comes back to London, they meet this cool new hippie group, the Levelers. The Levelers are like, hey man, what if we dissolve government and start from scratch? We could have this new democratic system with an agreement of the people and religious liberty and like get rid of private property, it's going to be super radical, dude. And initially, a bunch of members of the army are like, ooh, that's cool. We're that sexy. We're into that. Power for the people. Feel the burn. But then army leadership is like, wait, what? The Lovelers have nothing to do with us. Their policies aren't actually helping us out. Nope. Bye, Felicia. While all this is going on, in the outer fringes of England, in the north, in the west, in Wales, we start seeing uprisings popping up again. This time these uprisings are people who are just sick of parliament versus army fighting. It's not so much parliament versus Char Charles. But these uprisings are starting in areas that traditionally have been hotbeds of royalist support. These uprisings are going to be the Second English Civil War. It kicks off in 1648 with an uprising in Wales. And Scotland is going to jump in as well because Parliament has gone back on some of its promises regarding reforming the church. However, these uprisings never happen all at once, so the army and Parliament is able to pick them off one by one, ending with the Scottish defeat in Preston in August 1648. These uprisings and the fact that Charles had allied with them and had joined up with Scotland shows that Charles 
can't be trusted and will work with anyone to get rid of Parliament. In the aftermath of the very short-lived Second English Civil War, Parliament has two choices. They can either bring back Charles as king with a constant fear that he will try to ally with someone random and overthrow them, or they can totally remove Charles, aka executing him. Exiling Charles isn't enough because he could always try to reinvade. Only a small minority of Parliament actually wants to execute Charles. The small minority are mostly the members of Parliament who are closely allied with the army. But on December 6, 1648, the army, led by Colonel Pride, purges the members of Parliament who are torn on executing the king. This is known as Pride's Purge. In Pride's Purge, about half of the members of Parliament are arrested or otherwise prevented from taking their seats. A bunch of other members of Parliament refuse to sit and protest, setting up what's known as the Rump Parliament that's basically going to rule England until the restoration of Charles II in 1660. This Rump Parliament calls for the trial of the king because the army wants a trial, and the army has made it pretty clear that they're going to do whatever they want. Ultimately, only about one-tenth of the members of parliament from the original Long Parliament approve the trial. So it's a tiny minority of parliament that actually wants to put the king on trial and wants to execute him. In the lead-up to the trial, Charles is kept in army custody in prison. Doing this makes Charles really sympathetic to the public. Remember, he's this tiny little man with a bit of a stammer. He's locked up in jail. He can't run away. Why are you being so mean to him? Charles's trial starts in January 1649. It is a huge defeat for Parliament because throughout the because throughout the trial, Charles is really dignified and wins over a ton of public sympathy. When he's called to testify on January 20th, he is very dignified, he refuses to recognize the court as legitimate, and refuses to plead charges. While this might win him a lot of public support, it doesn't really win him any favors in the long run. Charles's refusal to plead is seen as an admission of guilt, and on January 27th, Parliament sentences him to death. I mean, obviously, Parliament was going to sentence him to death no matter what, but at least he looked good coming out of it. In the lead-up to, in the lead up to his death, Charles talks to his youngest son, Henry, writes a letter to his oldest son, Charles. In this letter, Charles tells young Charles to resist revenge once he comes back to the throne. Charles is pretty sure that his family will make it back on the throne, and he wants to make sure that his son does not isolate the country the way he did. He also gives away the possessions that he has left, aka a prayer book, a watch fob, and weirdly enough, a gold toothpick to the colonel who was guarding him and was kind to him. Charles I is executed at Whitehall Palace on January 30th, Apparently, he wore two shirts on the day of his execution because it was cold and he did not want to shiver and seem like a coward. 
In his pre-death speech, he forgave those who were responsible for his execution, he prayed for peace, and called himself a martyr for peace in front of a very sympathetic crowd. His last words were either, I shall go from a corruptible to an incorruptible crowd, where no disturbance can be, or remember, which he said to one of the men who was taking his cloak off right before his head was cut off. After his head was cut off, his body was embalmed and was later buried in St. George's Chapel in Windsor Castle. Weirdly enough, he's buried next to Henry VIII and Jane Seymour. I'm not really sure why he's buried there, but that's where he's buried. Almost immediately after Charles's death, he got a ton of public support and public popularity. And paintings painted soon after his death, he's shown as almost a Christ-like figure. Ten days after his execution, a memoir that's supposedly written by him called Icon Basilicae, or the Royal Portrait, that contained an apology for everything, was published and became this really huge piece of royalist propaganda. It's almost like as soon as his head was cut off, everyone forgot all the mistakes he made. So, that's Charles I. In case you maybe didn't pay attention, or you're more of a skimmer who likes their bullet points instead of a big, juicy study guide, here's a quick recap. Charles I was never supposed to be king. His older brother Henry was the one who was trying to be king, but he died. Charles inherited a lot of issues from his father, specifically debt, religious tensions, and a rowdy parliament. Charles continued to struggle working with parliament. He thought he was right, and parliament was wrong. They fought over religion and who got to raise taxes, and in anger, Charles dissolves parliament for 11 years. During this 11-year period, he raises taxes without parliament's permission, which is illegal. He also makes Scotland so angry that Scotland invades England. Charles has no choice but to call Parliament back, but continues to work very badly with Parliament. As a result of this, we see such a gap between Charles and Parliament that there's no choice but civil war. Charles gets his ass kicked in the civil war, flees to Scotland, gets sent back to London, tries a second civil war, that fails. Parliament ultimately has no choice, they claim, but to execute him. Upon execution, Charles immediately becomes a hero figure. And I think that's it. So, I hope you enjoyed this. I hope you enjoyed this study guide on Charles I in the Civil War. It was a little bit surface level, I know. I was just trying to get everything in and not have it be three and a half hours long. Once again, if you want a much more detailed look at the English Civil War that really focuses on the military history, I'm going to suggest the first season of Revolutions by Mike Duncan, also the Charles I and Oliver Cromwell episodes of Rex Factor talk a lot about specific battles, so if that's something you're interested in, definitely check out Rex Factor. Allie and Graham are amazing. I love them. Last time, I forgot to mention where the music for the opening comes from. It's Let's Take an Old Fashioned Walk by Billy Murray and Ada Jones, so thank you for that. And now, time for social media. You can email the podcast at sadgirlstudyguides at gmail.com. I love hearing from you all, so please keep doing that. 
The podcast Twitter is Sad Girl Study Pod. The Instagram is Sad Girl Study. Check out the Twitter to hear my thoughts on things. Check out the Instagram to see some great pictures of the subjects we talk about, as well as some really dank memes. And the Patreon is Sad Girl Study Guides. If you join the Patreon at $5 a month or more, you get access to bi-weekly bonus episodes, aka tangent casts. The first tangent cast will be dropping along with this episode, and it will be on either John Milton or William Prynne. I decided to go with disfigured writers of the Civil War era. Also, I do have a website for the podcast, sadgirlstudyguides.com. Please check it out. It contains a lot of pictures and my source list. The best way to help the podcast is to rate and review. By reviewing the podcast, I get to know what I'm doing well and how I can improve. And please subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or whatever podcast directory you like, or else I'll be sad. Thank you.